0: Part 3 Chapter 9 of Canada's Hundred Days This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesay Part 3 Chapter 9 Operations September 30th through October 2nd Continued What had happened on the left is described in the narrative of the 1st Canadian Division, already drawn upon so copiously. Orders were issued on the night of September 30th for a synchronized attack on October 1st by the four divisions in line. The 1st Divisional Front was extended a 1,000 yards to the south, making a total front of attack of about 3,000 yards. During the night the 3rd Brigade, Brigadier General G.S. Tuxford, moved forward to the right and assembled behind the 12th Brigade, through whom they were to attack. The attack of the 1st Division was to be made by the 3rd and 1st Brigades. The barrage opened at 5 o'clock. On the right, the 13th Battalion, Montreal Highlanders, attacked and captured Blaycor, after very heavy fighting. On the left, the 1st Battalion, Western Ontario, and 4th Battalion, Central Ontario, launched the attack for the 1st Brigade. Brigadier General W.A. Griesbach. The 1st Battalion secured the line of the railway north of Blaycourt, but were unable to get beyond owing to the intense fire from Avancourt. On the left, the 4th Battalion got to within 200 yards of the railway, but were definitely held up there. Further on the left, the attack of the 11th, British, Division had been stopped at the very start. In the meantime, the 16th Battalion, Canadian-Scottish of Western Canada, and 14th Battalion, Royal Montreal Regiment, passed through Blaycourt and attacked on the right and left. Cuvier and Bantigny were captured by eight o'clock by these battalions, respectively. Enemy activity on the exposed left developed into counterattacks against the 14th Battalion, three being driven off. Both battalions were now in untenable positions enemy machine-gun concentrations on the high ground west of Abencor, sweeping their left rear and artillery firing at point-blank range from their front under the circumstances a retirement was ordered the enemy being made to pay dearly for every foot of ground given up a short stand was made at Blaycor, but fresh enemy attacks forced our line back to the west of this village, a line held with the aid of artillery and machine-gun fire against continued enemy attacks. The fighting to which the 1st Canadian Division was thus exposed was peculiarly bitter and gave opportunity for many deeds of heroism. Thus, Captain Chester Francis Cummins, of the 1st Battalion, Western Ontario, While leading his company, found that, owing to the darkness, his men were pushing in ahead of our own barrage. He ran forward and, under heavy machine gun fire, checked and reorganized the men. In the subsequent advance, in which his company suffered many casualties, he was severely wounded in the arm, but with indomitable spirit and almost superhuman effort, he forced his way forward, cheering and inspiring his men until again hit he nevertheless still pressed on, cheering and exhorting his men until he received a third and fatal wound. In the attack on Abancourt, the 4th Battalion, Central Ontario, found itself held up by wire and machine-gun posts. Sergeant William Merrifield of Ottawa, finding that his men were being shot down by the deadly fire coming from two enemy machine-gun posts on high ground on the flank, attacked them both single-handed he dashed from shell hole to shell hole until he had sniped three of the crew of the first post and then killed the fourth with the butt of his rifle he fell wounded into the post but presently recovering he clambered out and attacked the second post throwing a bomb and under cover of the explosion dashed in and killed the three men working the gun He then returned to his platoons, refusing to be evacuated and leading his men with great skill until severely wounded. In this battle, Major Roderick Ogle-Bell Irving, commanding the 16th Battalion Scottish, fought his last fight. He skillfully led the attack in the darkness, fearlessly exposing himself in all places until the objectives of Cuvier was taken. The battalion had suffered severely, but he went along the line, reorganizing his men and consolidating the position. While he was engaged on this, at his outposts, a heavy enemy counterattack developed on the left flank of the battalion. He personally directed the fire of two machine guns until the ammunition was exhausted. When, seeing his left flank was in danger of being enveloped by the masses of the enemy, he ordered the withdrawal of the outpost line. He remained until every man had left the outpost, but while retiring on the main line of resistance, he was fatally wounded. He refused to allow his men to stay with him as the enemy was rapidly surrounding the spot where he lay. His body was afterwards recovered by the battalion. The narrative of the 1st Canadian Division continues as follows. That night, the 6th Brigade of the 2nd Division relieved the 3rd Brigade, and the 2nd Brigade relieved the 1st Brigade on the left. The next day passed without incident, and on the night of October 2nd, the 2nd Brigade was relieved by a brigade of the 11th British Division, the relief of the 1st Division being completed by 10 o'clock on the morning of October 3rd, the division then coming into corps reserve. As a matter of fact, the 6th Brigade was engaged during the day of October 1st, the 27th Battalion of Winnipeg, 28th Battalion of Regina, and 29th Battalion of Vancouver all taking part in the battle as did other elements of the second canadian division major general sir henry e burstall this division which as has been recorded before had seen fighting all through the early summer months in the line before arras while the other canadian divisions were in ghq reserve and had actively held the line of the canal du nord throughout september was now brought up to renew the vigor of our attack on the following morning the intention being for the 5th Brigade to go in on the right and the 6th Brigade on the left, relieving troops holding the center of our line. These two brigades came up during the early afternoon and for some hours lying in close support. They were here exposed to very heavy fire and suffered heavy casualties. Thus, the 6th Brigade was in support of the 9th Brigade along the line of the Scheldt and though it had no actual fighting in this sector one of its battalions the 27th of winnipeg lost 9 officers and 125 men nothing is harder on troops than this passive exposure to a galling fire and when the order came to move up in active support there was general relief pressure was so great during the afternoon that it became necessary to use some of the elements of the second canadian division in the line And thus for the last time in the history of the Canadian Corps all four of its divisions were engaged in a common battle line on the same day the description given above makes clear the reasons for the relative failure of this cumulative effort there was here all the material for a striking success and in the early morning all the objectives have been attained But the weakness of our left flank due to the failure of the 11th Division to take and hold the heights between Epenois and Abencourt reacted all along the line. But this was only one cause. The other was our own weakened ranks together with the unprecedented number of men at this stage in the war the enemy did not hesitate to throw in against us. His losses were tremendous. Our artillery had never had such a day. From dawn until dark they poured in their fire often at point-blank ranges, and the litter of enemy dead upon the battlefield, as it was afterwards exposed to our view, was nothing less than appalling. If we had fallen short of victory, the sequel was to show that we had beaten the enemy to a standstill and that he had no stomach left for further fight with the Canadian Corps. Allusion has been made before to a published narrative of the First Army, under which the Canadian Corps fought all the way from Arras to Mall. It is entitled, The Final Blow for the First Army in 1918, and what it says about this particular day is interesting. October 1st and 2nd On these days, the fighting was extraordinarily severe. The Canadians, who are experts at tough fighting, a claim at the stiffest they have ever been up against the object was to take the bridge heads over the canal northeast of combray that once done the enemy would be out of the commanding and extremely valuable high ground which on the south commanded Cambrai with its railway junctions and on the north rested on the salt marshes and overlooked the country to the north of them in many ways a key position to the whole line here then, on ground admirably suited and organized for defense, and necessary to the Boche line, the Germans put up a desperate fight. Up the ravines from the northeast, especially up the hollow leading to Bantigny, they brought division after division. Thirteen divisions are known to have been thrown into the fight, only to be smashed by our tireless guns and our indomitable troops. One battery of heavies on October 1st fired 1,600 rounds. The enemy's cleverly placed machine guns fought hard. Round Blaycor, as a center, the battle raged. But the machine gun positions were hunted down. The masses of the enemy were torn by our artillery fire with awful slaughter, to be replaced by others who suffered the same fate. The Canadians in the 11th British Division, though suffering from heavy losses and wearied with days of fighting and advancing, held and improved their ground. Pressed in front and with his retreat threatened by the advance of the 3rd Army from the south, the Hun began sullenly to withdraw. Though still fighting, his shattered divisions. The ground was ours. The capture of Combray was now only a matter of time. Patrols had already entered its outskirts. It is difficult to give a true picture of this day's fighting. Did space permit official records of the deeds of individual officers and men who this day earned military honors would fill in the sketch? A few of these have been given above. The following cases illustrate how the men fought day after day, almost without pause, until they were tired and battle-weary, but still refused to admit defeat. Lieutenant Milton Fowler Gregg, Royal Canadian Regiment, a native of Mountain Dale, New Brunswick, when the advance of the Seventh Brigade on september twenty eighth against the Marcoing line was held up by a heavy machine-gun fire on both flanks and thick, uncut wire in front of the enemy trench system, crawled forward alone and explored the wire until he found a small gap through this he led his men organizing bombing parties which went right and left along the trench. The enemy counterattacked in force, and through lack of bombs the situation became critical for his company. Although wounded in the head and weakened by loss of blood, he started back alone to our attacking line, and going from one company to another, collected a further supply of bombs which he carried back, suffering a second wound, this time in his side. He found but a handful of his men left, but he quickly reorganized them and started to bomb the enemy out of his defense system. This consisted of a series of short trenches, three to seven yards long, and the enemy advanced over the top to the attack time after time. But at length he cleared the system, himself killing eleven and taking twenty-five prisoners. Notwithstanding his severe wounds, he steadfastly refused to be evacuated on september thirtieth he again led his company into the attack but he was severely wounded and was ordered out by his senior officer he made his report at battalion headquarters and then collapsed lieutenant honey who had risen from the ranks of the seventy eighth battalion of winnipeg particularly distinguished himself on september twenty seventh in the attack on bourlon wood When his company officer and all other officers had become casualties, he took command and skillfully reorganized under severe fire. He continued the advance with great dash and reached the objective. Then, finding that his company was suffering casualties from enfilade machine gun fire, he located the machine gun nest and rushed it single-handed, capturing the guns and ten prisoners. Subsequently, he repelled four enemy counterattacks, and after dark went out alone, and having located an enemy post, led a party and captured the post and three machine guns. On September 29th, in the fight for the plateau, he led his company against a strong enemy position with great skill and daring, and continued in the succeeding days of the battle to display the same high example of valor and self-sacrifice on the last day of the attack by his battalion he was wounded in both legs but carried on doing wonderful work finally he received wounds from which he died captain john mcgregor second cmr who enlisted at vancouver but is a native of nairn scotland during the attack of the eighth brigade on september thirtieth although wounded led his company under intense fire When held up by a machine gun post, he seized a rifle and single-handed and in broad daylight attacked with the bayonet, killing four and capturing eight of the enemy. His prompt action saved many casualties and enabled the attack to go forward. Later on, he gathered his men together under intense fire and organized a party to fill in a gap in the flank and reinforced our troops attacking Tiloa hearing that two commanders of companies attacking on the right had become casualties and seeing that the stubborn resistance of the enemy was holding up our advance with absolute disregard of danger he went along the line organized the platoons and taking command of the leading waves continued the advance later after a personal daylight reconnaissance he established his company in neuville saint remy thus greatly assisting the advance into tillois During the attack on the Canal du Nord on September 27th, Lieutenant Thomas Eason Miller, 8th Battalion of Winnipeg, led his platoon with great skill and gallantry. His company commander became a casualty early in the engagement, and though he himself was wounded, he remained on duty, showing splendid judgment and coolness in command of the company, taking it to its objective. That evening, just west of Haincourt, the enemy counterattacked on the exposed right flank of the 2nd Brigade, but Lieutenant Miller succeeded in building up a right flank, and that night he made a daring reconnaissance. Disregarding his wound, next day when troops on his right failed to keep up with the advance, he established contact by covering the gap and thus secured a very dangerous situation. On September 29th, when at 9 o'clock in the morning his battalion attacked east of the Douai Cambrai Road, all of the officers of the two companies on the right having become casualties, he took command and led the attack successfully through two belts of wire and under heavy fire attacked alone a group of the enemy and captured 22 prisoners. When troops on either flank failed to keep up, he consolidated a line and beat off three enemy counterattacks. At half-past two that afternoon, he was knocked unconscious by a shell, but recovering two hours later resumed command and protected the right flank against repeated attacks, refusing to leave the line until the battalion was relieved. His determination and coolness won a glorious fight. Sergeant Theodore Martin, in the same operation, when all the officers in his vicinity had become casualties, and though himself severely wounded in the lake, recognizing that the situation was most serious and must be controlled remained in a shell hole where although unable to move he continued to direct his men for ten hours refusing to be evacuated until relieved not only did he display a great fortitude but his cool and accurate messages telephoned into battalion headquarters throughout the day saved a very tight corner Great heroism was displayed by the auxiliary services in this terrible battle, and by none more so than the chaplain service. Once again the Padres gave proof of their devotion upon the field. Thus, Captain Albert Edward Andrew, chaplain of the Royal Canadian Regiment, when our men were forced to withdraw, for forty hours, without an interval for rest, made repeated trips into no man's land, often in the face of intensive machine-gun fire, bringing in our wounded. When all the officers of this battalion had become casualties, he remained in the front line, carrying food and drink to groups of our men, and inspiriting them, so that even in the midst of beating off an enemy counter-attack, they raised a cheer for his gallantry. In this battle, Canon Scott of Quebec City, beloved senior chaplain of the 1st Canadian Division, was wounded by a shell which exploded beside him wounding him in many places in arms legs and body when he was wounded the expression of surprise that he had so long escaped was very general as it was frequently remarked that he was looking for it on the route of evacuation despite his painful wounds through aid post dressing station and casualty clearing station he carried his large crucifix in his hand and preached to those about his impressive sermons on patience christian fortitude and resignation A wounded soldier remarked how edifying it was to see how happy he was in his sufferings. Gallant work, too, was done by the medical service. The conduct of the stretcher-bearers, working continuously under fire, was beyond all praise, and nothing could surpass the devotion of the drivers of the ambulances. Magnificent work throughout was done by our field ambulances, and also by medical officers attached to fighting units. Thus, on September 27th, Captain Albert R. Hagerman, M.O., of the 78th Battalion, followed close behind the attacking infantry and established a regimental aid post in the open under heavy shell and machine gun fire. On September 29th, he established a dressing station in a forward trench, and for two days he worked unceasingly under shell fire in this position, dressing hundreds of wounded. In the intensive fighting of these days, casualties among regimental officers were particularly severe, these exposing themselves fearlessly in order to hearten their men. Among the wounded was Lieutenant Colonel C.R.E. Willets of the Royal Canadian Regiment. In this battle, the Canadian Corps touched its pinnacle of fame. Beyond question, the battle, and especially the fighting of September 30th and October 1st, was the most savage and sustained in which the canadian corps ever engaged only the utmost heroism and tenacity of our infantry ably supported by our gunners enabled us to cling on in the salient we had driven into the heart of the enemy's defence in face of withering fire and there withstand wave after wave of counter-attacks by almost overwhelming numbers In this wonderful stand against enemy masses determined to wrest from them their conquests, gallant and heroic episodes were innumerable. Battalions, companies, and little knots of men stood their ground unflinchingly, though often detached and even cut off for a time from all support. It is the penalty of storming troops, such as the Canadian Corps, that they sometimes create for themselves in their impetuous advance unprotected flanks. The salient they drive into the enemy line becomes enveloped, and if power is not at hand to widen it out into a practical front, the troops in the apex must either fight it out against overwhelming odds or fall back. The latter is not the lesson the Canadian Corps had learned, and it was this desperate clinging to positions tactically untenable that contributed to our heavy casualties. There is the case of a sergeant who refused to fall back when ordered by his superior officer, and fought his company all day until night descended. In those five days of battle, the Canadian Corps dealt such a blow at the enemy that he reeled back to final defeat. Above everything else, it was the unconquerable spirit of all ranks that gained the decision. Notwithstanding his lavish outpourings of blood, He had not shaken a whit our stranglehold on his vital pivot of Combré. But that we had gained the decision was by no means clear on the evening of October 1st. Our losses had been so severe, our reserves had been so freely drawn upon, that there was anxiety on all hands that night as to whether the morning might not see a last, final thrust, such as we might be in no condition to fight off. Logic was against it. He had used up against us on this day no less than 33 battalions. Our intelligence reported that, since the battle opened, he had been forced to send to the north five reserve divisions he might still have drawn upon, and it was difficult to see where he could get fresh troops to continue the battle. It was a night of anxiety indeed, but there was the cheering sight of enemy dumps being blown up and burning in his immediate rear. But we were taking no chances at five o'clock in the morning on october 2nd our artillery laid down a tremendous counter preparation along the whole line designed to catch his waves should they be advancing to the assault nothing developed dawn broke and the enemy line was suspiciously quiet then word began to go around that he was falling back that he had mistaken our barrage for another attack such as he had had to face in each of the five preceding mornings The battle was won. End of part three, chapter nine. Recording by Kathleen Nelson, Austin, Texas, July, two thousand and ten.